Hi, you're listening to a sermon from Oak Hills Church in Folsom, California. We're so glad you're listening. If you'd like more information, you can visit us online at oakhills.org or phone us at 916-983-0181. Good morning. Well, this morning we're continuing in our series entitled Songs I Can't Stop Singing. And each week we're using a different song as a springboard for learning how to live in the kingdom of God. And we kicked off the series last week with the Beatles song, When I'm 64. And if you missed it, I encourage you to listen online through our website. Manuel did a beautiful job. And the song that you just heard and that Ashley expressed so beautifully through dance is called At 17. And it was written and released by Janice Ian back in 1975. How many of you have ever heard of this song before? Okay, good. (laughs) Some of you have. Uh, She said that the song was inspired by a newspaper article that she read about a former debutante who learned the hard way that being popular as a teenager didn't solve all her problems. While she refers to herself as an ugly duckling, she felt that this is a song of hope because ugly ducklings do become swans. At 17 is a portrait of the bittersweet challenges of adolescence, teenage cruelty, the quest to be loved, and the illusion of popularity. From the perspective of a woman looking back from adulthood to her earlier experience as a teen trying to find her way as an ugly duckling girl, ignored in high school while the popular girls got all the attention and seemingly the perfect future and love until it all fell apart for those popular girls, because beauty and popularity doesn't always translate to a win for the future. I hear this song pretty much every day, because it's actually been my cell phone ringtone for a few months now. It's got a nice groove to it as a folk rock song, but more than that, it's laced with some powerful words. It's poetry and music filled with feelings and metaphors that paint some brilliant word pictures. And the song stirs something in me. It's probably safe to say that most of us here are north of age 17 and have already navigated and survived the often turbulent waters of adolescence, even your pastors. Take a look. Our pastor, Manuel Luz, our creative arts pastor, once upon a time (laughs) at 17, and our dear Colleen Gray, also former 17, and Travis Carr, our youth pastor, such a youngin, huh? And Jordan Wells, our former Screamo band person, who really hasn't changed that much, right? (laughs) And uh, Rick Leary, who you saw up here earlier, who is our campus development pastor, former... Navy meteorologist, yeah. And then, of course, we can't leave out our senior pastor, Mike Lukin. This is what he gets for not being here today. (laughs) Former football player turned senior pastor. And then uh, there is myself, which I'm not sure we need the picture because I'm here. Uh, But at 17... and former school mascot turned training manager turned care pastor. And I still have that bear, by the way. Uh, 
it was a Christmas Eve uh, many, when I was 17, and I kept the bear, and I kept the guy who gave it to me. It'll be 39 years that, that day, 39 years ago in December. So it's true. We were all kids once, too. And uh, some of us have fond or neutral memories of high school, while for others of us it was a grueling experience we couldn't wait to escape. Adolescence can be a time of both joy and angst, and successful movies like Ten Things I Hate About You and Never Been Kissed portrayed the trials of triumphs and uh, those turbulent high school years and the struggle to find oneself and to belong. A particular favorite high school film is the 1987 hit The Breakfast Club. Some of you probably remember that. It's a story of five teens forced to spend a Saturday in detention for various infractions, and they couldn't be more different and they can hardly stand each other. They judge and chide each other and the labels that they wear, weighing out each other's worth, but gradually they become more curious about each other as the day goes on, and they hear each other's stories. And their fourth day together has produced some unexpected results. Take a look. Dear Mr. Vernon, we accept the fact that we had to sacrifice a whole Saturday in detention for whatever it was we did wrong. But we think you're crazy to make us write an essay telling you who we think we are. And you see us as you want to see us. In the simplest terms, with the most convenient definitions. But what we found out is that each one of us is a brain. And an athlete. And a basket case. A princess. And a criminal. Does that answer your question? Sincerely yours, The Breakfast Club. That was a good one. How many of you cheered at the end of that movie? Yeah. <laughs> well, I think this is a powerful picture of how we can let our labels define and divide us when in reality we have so much more in common than we realize. And we discover that we are more than our labels and how they define or limit us. When we first meet people, we tend to size them up and we slot them into some kind of category by pinning a label or two on them. We do the same thing to ourselves when we label ourselves or allow someone else's label to get welded on us. In our time together this morning, I'd like to talk about the implications of those labels and how they factor into our identity and our formation into Christ's likeness. Would you stand for our scripture reading? Uh, you'll find the scripture reading in Ephesians 4, verses 17 through 25, and if you want to follow along, it'll be on page 1175 in your Bible, the Bible around you. Ephesians 4, 17 to 25. So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge every kind of impurity, and they are full of greed. That, however, is not the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. 
Well, the song at 17 has some really powerful messages in it. Songs about being labeled, about not being chosen for the team, and thinking the beautiful get everything that they want in the end, which really isn't always true. Labels are a reality in our human experience, and it's good to understand the power that we give them. The word label means a couple of things. A small piece of paper, fabric, or plastic, or similar material attached to an object that gives information about it. For example, the label on the jar of mayonnaise will tell you the brand and what's in it, and I prefer not to read that part because I'd like to keep eating mayonnaise. Um, another definition of label is classifying, a classifying phrase or name applied to a person or thing, especially one that is inaccurate or restrictive. That's from the dictionary. Labels are a way that we relate to things and people starting at a very young age. It's how we understand what or whom we're experiencing. This furry thing is a dog. This furry thing is a cat. They're both animals, but they are not the same. They don't have the same label. Now, when our two-year-old grandson started to talk, uh, I was desperately trying to teach him to say my grandma name, which is Mimi. And so he would come over, and, and I would try to help him say Silas, and we would point to, I would point to him, and I'd say Mimi, Silas, Mimi. And he would look at me, and he wouldn't say anything. And then finally one day... Uh, I looked at him and I went, Silas, Mimi. And he looked at me and he pointed to himself and said, Mimi. <laughs> so I was thrilled he said the, said the name, but he had it on the wrong person, wrong label. So we all have labels related to our roles, spouse, parent, friend, to our ethnicity, our gender, our race, political party, job title, birth order, and the list goes on. And Christ follower is a label as well. And many of our labels are either neutral or good. We like labels like popular, beautiful, strong, successful, smart, winner. But we also wear negative labels like worthless, disappointment, and failure, for example. And we put labels on other people. We label people based on our first impressions of them, the things they say, things we observe, and experiences we have with them. So how do we get these labels? Well, some we gave ourselves, some we picked up in our childhood contacts, some we got from our enemy, Satan, who wants, us, uh, wants to keep us from our true identity. We also took on a few labels in our high school experience, either imposed on us or ones we gave ourselves, because teenagers tend to assign each other to categories, like the popular kids, the brains, the cheerleaders, the band kids, the nerds, the jocks. And as I'm saying those, you're probably thinking the group you were in. And the labels we acquire in our youth can accompany us into adulthood. They shape our identity, and they also impact our emotional and relational health and our formation into Christ-likeness. Part of being human is that for the rest of your life, people will be trying to find words to describe you and to categorize you or put you in a box. And they can be hard for you to break out of in their minds. With these boxes or labels often come some unwanted companions like negative self-talk, diminished worth, as you may start to define yourself by the labels others have put on you. I've done this to myself, I've had it done to me, and I've done it to other people. It seems even harder today for our young people to claim their true and healthy identity with social media, Snapchat, cyberbullying, the high demand for scholastic success, and the terrible body shaming that goes on. 
And these things can cause our children pain and confusion. None of us are exempt from labeling. It affects us all sometimes very deep in our core being. Here are some of my labels from my youth. Good church girl. Invisible. Undesirable. Failure. Third wheel. Incapable. And sheltered. These aren't all the labels I've worn or that I wear today. They're just some of the standouts from my adolescence. And in some way, they still leak out and show themselves today, often to my surprise. In particular, good church girl has been a hard label for me to wear through my life. It has set other people up to be disappointed in me when, A, they've expected me to be better than I actually am. So when I fail, I disappoint them and I disappoint myself. Or B, because they stayed away from me, thinking I'm a phony, no one can be that good, and they were and are right. I'm not that great. I've got plenty of flaws and places still in need of a divine overhaul. I remember when I was singing a solo at about age six at church, and I forgot the second verse. And I just stood there, and the piano player just smiled at me and nodded like that was going to help me remember the words that I needed to sing. And I just felt hundreds of eyes just boring through me. And I made a little agreement with my thoughts at that point, which was, I'm incapable. And from that point on in my life, I was afraid of opportunities or things where I might fail. And it was hard for me to take those chances, both in my uh, childhood and my professional life. Sometimes it still is. Now, I realize I'm not the only one who got labeled in those tender years. You have labels from your youth, too. Some are good and some are more negative, and both have consequences. Listen to these labels and see if you can identify with any of these. Loner, ugly, shy, lazy, stupid, klutz, loser, joke, plain, too short, too tall, failure, outcast, troublemaker, broken, mistake, Unwanted, nerd, class clown, spoiled, dummy, smarty pants, mousy, fake, rebel, quiet, inadequate, rejected, and the list goes on and on. Well, do any of those resonate with you? And of course, you may have other labels that I didn't mention, and it's important for you, as it is for me, to know what our labels are, and that brings me to my second point. Labels help shape our identity. They speak into and influence the core of who we are, and they derail who we're meant to become. Labels are powerful concepts and words, and words matter a lot. The Bible makes this clear, even to the point of saying that words aren't just powerful, they are life and death to our souls and hearts. Proverbs 18.21 says, Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruits. You remember the old saying, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me? Well, this is simply not true. Words can hurt. In fact, they can do psychological damage. They can scar our tender being, cutting us to our core. The words we speak about ourselves can become self-fulfilling prophecies. When we tell ourselves things like, I'll never get things right, I'll never be good enough, I'm going to fail. The words we believe can impede our ability to figure out who we really are. And we all want to know who we really are. In his book, Immortal Diamond, Richard Rohr writes this. Who of us has not asked, who am I? Who am I really? What am I all about? Is there any essential me here? 
It's as if we're all a big secret to ourselves and must search for clues, however obscure they may be. Yet the search never stops fascinating us, even as we grow older. If it does, we have almost certainly stopped growing. Any lecture or class on understanding yourself always draws great interest, even from otherwise jaded or superficial people. One sees this fascination in little children as their eyes widen if you tell them about the day they were born or what they were like as a kid or what they might be when they grow up. Try it and notice how children quiet and listen with intense interest at almost anything about themselves. They gaze at you with wonder and excitement and invariably want to hear more. These messages must feel like oracles from another world to them and doorways to still hidden secrets. This curiosity about ourselves grows more intense in the teen and young adult years as we try on a dozen costumes and roles, and we surely covet any recognition or praise of our most recent incarnation. We quickly grab it and we try it on for size as if to say, this might be me. Some never take their costume off. A too early or too successful self becomes a total life agenda, occasionally for good, for more often more for ill. Think of the many young athletes, musicians, and poets who become obsessed with their identity but never make it to the big time. Even if they do succeed, there are too many stories of unhappiness, being lost, and self-destruction. Our ongoing curiosity about our true self seems to lessen if we settle into any successful role. We have then allowed others to define us from the outside, although we do not realize it, or perhaps we dress ourselves up on the outside and we never get back inside. Who am I? The question to that, the answer to that question is hugely important and that's often elusive. It's what we hope to gain clarity on when we take assessments like Myers-Briggs and the animal personality test, the Enneagram, Finders, spiritual gifts tests, and more. We want to know ourselves better. We want to know what makes us tick and who we really are. And sometimes we need tools to help us figure that out. And these are all wonderful tools. I've done that myself. I've done that with those assessments. And then what I did is I drew a picture of myself. And on either side of my lovely stick figure picture of me, I put what all those things are, what all those assessments say about me, because I want to understand who I am. And I realize that this is just a snapshot in time. And by the way, this is, I keep this in a folder labeled me. So there's no confusion as to what that is. Uh, It's just a snapshot in time, and and with the transforming work of the Holy Spirit, I hope to continue to grow to be more like Christ and more my true self. The false self gets erected by faulty thinking about ourselves, responses to words spoken to us or by us, uh, by experiences we've had, wounds we've sustained, even back to our childhood. We've developed a false identity that helps to protect us, alleviate or minimize our pain, and navigate our own kingdom where we are the ones in charge. Rohr goes on to say, we've got to get the self right. The true self is that part of you that knows who you are and whose you are. Though largely unconsciously, your false self is who you think you are, but your thinking doesn't make it true. Your false self is almost entirely a social construct to get you started on your life journey. It is a set of agreements between your childhood and your parents, your family, your neighbors, your school chums, your partner or spouse, and your religion. It is your container for your separate self. Jesus would call it your wineskin, 
which he points out usually cannot hold any new wine. Your ego container likes to stay contained and hates change. Your false self is how you define yourself outside of love relationship or divine union. After you have spent many years laboriously building this separate self with all its labels and preoccupations, you are very attached to it. And why wouldn't you be? It's what you know and all you know. To move beyond it will always feel like losing or dying. See, the false self employs survival strategies to manage our world, our ego, our place, people's impressions of us. It's a scaffolding we've erected to falsely prop us up, and it breeds pretending and the construction of thick walls of protection that serve as barriers to keep us from getting hurt or from truly being known, even from truly knowing ourselves. We long to be at peace with who we are and to flourish. That's why we cheer for the bearded lady and the greatest showman as she boldly belts out the song, This is me. Reflecting first the pain of being hidden away in the dark, being unwanted for her broken parts, bearing the weight of all her scars, being unloved, and yet finding the courage to break out of all those labels, now she has this joyful anthem bursting out of her. You've heard us talk about the false self and the true self over the years here at Oak Hills. Understanding these things is vital to fully living the life that God has for us, to living out of our genuine and best selves. Peter Scazzaro, in his book, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, writes, The vast majority of us go to our graves without knowing who we are. We unconsciously live someone else's life, or at least someone else's expectations for us. This does violence to ourselves. You see, we owe it to ourselves and to others and to God to become our true and authentic selves as God intends for us, shedding the old and leaning into who God is forming us to be. Getting our identity stuck due to false or old labels can open us up to habitual sin as we sense that something is amiss within ourselves. And we desperately seek the means for validation and we seek relief from our angst. It is God's intention that we grow up into mature men and women transformed by the indwelling presence of Christ, by his spirit in every part of our being. And yet most of us spend our adult life trying to either escape or recapture the labels of our past, depending on how they either harmed us or served us. We may even have sought counseling to sort those things out as they cut to the quick of our core identity. We desperately want to rid ourselves of the labels that have brought us shame and guilt and pain, frustration or isolation. And there are also those really difficult labels to overcome, like victim and addict. On the other hand, we desperately want to hold on to and reca- or recapture the ones that made us feel worthy, wanted, successful, and valued in the past. And we left disappointed and confused when the old labels aren't working anymore to get us what we want. When the star athlete in high school finds out they aren't the hero in their adult job. When the pretty girl everyone wanted to be finds out later in life that beauty is fleeting and she no longer gets the attention she used to. When the funny guy in class later finds that people aren't laughing at his jokes in the boardroom like the kids did in the classroom. And if we stay rooted in negative labels, we run the risk of producing fruit that reflects those, namely in our attitudes and emotions. Fear, negativity, self-protection, shame, guilt, self-loathing, anger, and judgment. We run ourselves into ruts, conditioning ourselves to live up to or down to what we believe about ourselves. 
and the labels that we wear. We run ourselves into ruts when what we need is resurrection. New life in our hurting places. New identity. Listen to these beautiful words in Isaiah 43. Forget the former things. Do not dwell on the past. See, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Do you not perceive it? I am making a way in the wilderness and streams in the wasteland. God is doing a new work in us, and our identity doesn't have to be the sum of our old labels because he is forming someone new in us, our very best selves, and this is very good news. Third, labels can affect our emotional and relational maturity. Living under our negative labels can wreak havoc on our emotions and on our relationships. And our emotions are not exempt from the power of our labels and our false self. In fact, they can be powerful indicators of what lies beneath the surface in each one of us. They serve as a signpost to deeper things in our character. So it's important to look at our emotions, how we tend to react to things and events and people, as clues to point to something deeper in our character and in our identity. Things that may have been shaped by our labels. Think of that feeling or emotional response as one end of a thread. And if we follow that thread backwards, we might discover the source of it. What happened? What words were spoken to us or about us that marked us? What experience marked us? What do I find in the past that's important for me to note and is affecting my feelings and my emotions today and my relationships? Often the person who responds to life with explosive anger driven by fear or hurt or frustration has some deep-seated pain rooted in a wound or a label or an insecurity. The pain of being too fat, too thin, too short, too tall or unlovable since childhood. That may express itself in an unchecked lashing out from the ever-flowing lava of seething rage always flowing beneath the surface. One small bump, conflict, perceived threat or infraction could set off a bomb-like tirade. The person desperate to feel wanted may suck all the attention in a room toward them by how they dress or how they act, desperate, desperate for people to see them and adore them, not realizing the exhausting demand that their ego or need for attention is placing on others. Or the person who is hypercritical of others may be stuck in their own label of not good enough which results in an I'll get you before you can get me way of being that shows itself in the need to control others or in being easily offended, highly critical, or just prickly to be around. And perhaps acidic biting words are wielded at others like a sword in a preemptive strike. We want to grow more spiritually mature, but often we don't take that down into the level of what's driving our emotions and affecting the way that we relate to others. Emotional and relational health and spiritual maturity really are inseparable. Peter Schizero also writes, Spiritual practices are good and vital. The problem, however, is that they inevitably you find, as I did, something is still missing. In fact, the spirituality of most discipleship models often only adds an additional protective layer against people growing up emotionally. Because people are having real and helpful spiritual experiences in certain areas of their lives, such as worship, prayer, 
Bible studies, and fellowship, they mistakenly believe that they're doing fine, even if their relational life and interior world is not in order. This apparent progress then provides a spiritual reason for not doing the hard work of maturing. They are deceived. Those are strong words. Spiritual language, training, practices, and theology cannot be a substitute for the healing and transformation Jesus wants to bring to the core of our identity through the power of the Holy Spirit in every part of us, including our emotions and relationships. This is abundant life in the kingdom of God. Many of us were taught not to trust our feelings and emotions, that they are unreliable. We must pay attention to what our emotions are saying to us. Otherwise, we continue in the old patterns that don't serve us well. We busy ourselves with good works while the reasons that we have a hair trigger on our anger remains untouched. Or why we obsess about our beauty or our weight or money or success. We try to calm the storm of anxiety we carry inside by overeating, overcleaning, overshopping, overexercising, or by other ways that we tend to medicate. Knowing how our labels feed our emotions and relationships is essential as we must bring them into the process of formation into the image of Christ so that our entire self is changed for the better. Four, Jesus the label changer. Jesus frequently tore down labels when he bucked the religious establishment and rules and when he crossed gender, cultural, and ethnic barriers like he did with the Samaritan woman, for example. There's another beautiful example of his label-changing work in Luke 7. In this story, Jesus has been invited to dinner at the home of a Pharisee. This was not a lovely social engagement. This was not a dinner round. Not where the Pharisee wanted to be a friend to Jesus. The Pharisees had decided that Jesus was a blasphemer and were trying to gather evidence against him. Somehow, in this setting, one of those people that the Pharisees despised most slips into the room. Her name isn't mentioned in this passage, but it's clear that she doesn't belong here. She's a town harlot, a prostitute, a sinner who has found out that Jesus is in this house. And she has arrived with the intention of having an encounter with him. How does she make it all the way to the feet of Jesus without being noticed by the Pharisee and thrown out? Has she become that good at being invisible to the self-righteous who hated her? In breaches of propriety, out of honor and affection, crying, she washes the feet of Jesus with her tears. And she dries them with her hair, kissing them many times and rubbing them with perfume. The Pharisee is disgusted, thinking no true religious leader would allow such a woman to touch them. He figures it's ignorance on Jesus' part, thinking that if Jesus were a prophet, he would know that the woman touching him is a sinner. But Jesus uses that encounter to teach the Pharisee a gospel lesson. Rather than condemn this woman for her seemingly brazen act, or simply ignoring her, Jesus speaks to her, and he gives her a new label, forgiven and saved. She leaves with a new identity. See, a redemptive encounter with Jesus can change things. He gives us a new name. He brings new life into our broken, hurting, and deadened places. The God of the universe won't leave us stuck in our old labels, but it will help us discover and live out the better ones that he has in mind for us. 
He's bringing resurrection power to fruition in each one of us as well on our continued journey to becoming more like Jesus. A new way of seeing ourselves is critical. Seeing ourselves as God sees us is vital to living the life we're called to live. When we know who we are in Jesus and we walk in that identity, our actions change to reflect that. Our desires change. We act and react accordingly. But unfortunately, our own voice is often the one speaking the loudest about who we are. And we also have a conniving enemy who is out to destroy us. And he would love nothing more than to label us as something we're not. If he can get us to believe a lie about ourselves, that false identity and those old labels have the potential to affect every aspect of our lives and to keep us stuck. We need to have a vision for who we can become and then do the work of training in righteousness with the help and power of the Holy Spirit in us to form us more into the likeness of Christ. At Oak Hills, we place a strong emphasis on our spiritual formation. Who we're becoming in Christ is critically important. Learning to live in the reality of God's kingdom, his rule and reign in our lives is for our best good, as well as for the good of others and for the sake of the world. Bringing maturity to our emotions and our relationships must be included in our spiritual growth. We can't leave those areas out of our formation efforts and expect transformation of our whole person. So let's bring this to a practical level. How do we change out of the labels that have held us back? Well, first we have to figure out what those labels are. What are the labels that you have let define you? As one of your pastors here, I frequently have the privilege of sitting with people in my office and listening to their lives, their triumphs and their trials, the ways they feel stuck, and how the labels they have lived with have affected them. It's a struggle. And the truth is we can choose to receive or reject most labels. We can choose to live by them or put them to death. We can allow them to stunt our growth or we can outgrow them. With the help of God and with others, we can take them off. It's not easy, but it's worth doing. Or at least we can diminish their power over us. As we read, as we read in our scripture reading earlier, we're called to take off the old and put on the new self. Well, how do we do that? Well, one way is to seek some wise counsel. Meet with a pastor or a therapist if you need to, to seek to gain insight and do the hard work of identifying those labels and their effects on your life, your emotions, and your relationships. Spend some time alone with God and ask him to show you the truth about yourself. Maybe journal what you hear him saying about you and ask him to set you free from unhealthy or false labels. Second practical thing we can do is to do a check on our emotional and relational maturity. How you respond to life, your feelings, your emotions, your relational health, these are all clues. Cultivate ongoing curiosity about what's happening in you. Why do you respond to people the way that you do? What does that track back to in your life? What label is driving that response? What needs to change? Why do you seem to shut down when conflict arises? What's the emotion you can track there? Why won't you express how you feel? Maybe you were told that feelings were bad or not to be trusted. When, and when someone gives you feedback, do you filter that through a grid of failure and shut down? So make a list of your emotional patterns and see what they might have to say to you, to reveal to you. Third practical thing we can do is to ask a trusted person this question. How do you experience me? 
See, we can't always see the truth about ourselves because all our junk gets in the way. It can be like looking at ourselves in a funhouse mirror, all distorted and squatty and blurry. But another trusted, wise person can be the mirror that offers you a clear and honest picture. This could be your spouse, your child, a good friend, a pastor. But this only works if you are open to hear without defending, justifying, deflecting, or getting angry. Honesty is vital, so you have to prepare yourself for that and to have ears to hear without being offended, to sort out what's true about what's humbly being shared with you. Fourth is find and be an encourager. Find and be an encourager. The song at 17 mentions a brown-eyed girl who points out the truth to the ugly duckling girl to encourage her. And we all need encouragers in our lives who can spur us on into becoming who God is making us to be. They call out the good in us when we can't see it in ourselves. And we need to be encouragers who, to who God has placed in our life. So the question is, who can you encourage? We especially need to encourage the young people in our lives and in our church. And young people, you need, be, uh, you need encouragers as well and mentors. Let's be the kind of church where, united in Christ, we can spur each other on to shed old painful labels and to grow together. The last practical thing I want to mention to you is to check yourself when you label others. Identify the labels you've put on others that diminish the sacredness of who they are. Who have you written off? Who have you put in a box that they can't get out of in your mind? Ask God to give you his view of them and then release them from your hurtful labels because every person you see has extraordinary value. Let us use gentleness and care when we consider one another. Let us help each other toward being everlasting splendors. Let us speak well of others when we speak of them to someone so we don't diminish their worth in the eyes of others. Let us be kind, the kind of church where we are known for our love and make room for our differences and believe the best about each other. Let that goodness flow out from us to those in every part of our lives that Jesus might be known to them. In our closing minutes, I want to give you some time to tend to whatever God wants to stir in you. And I'm going to talk you through a reflection time for a few minutes. And then Jordan's going to come up and sing a song. And this time is for you. This time is for you to attend to our ever-present God and what he wants to say to you. And I just want to invite you to submit yourself to the tender care of Jesus in this time. I'm going to invite Jordan up. There he is. Okay. And Jordan is going to play just for a few minutes as I breathe some words over you. Um, And then he's going to share a song. And this whole time, just be attentive to the Spirit of God. Make yourself comfortable. You might want to put your hands open in your lap as a gesture of releasing the old and receiving the new. And uh, close your eyes. I invite you to take a few deep cleansing breaths. Let the cares of the day fall off of you, even just for these minutes. Jesus is here. His love for you is deep. 
What are the labels he's inviting you to take off? To entrust to him those ones that have been harmful to you, that have cost you, that have been a heavy burden to carry, almost unbearable at times, worthless, unwanted, not good enough, not pretty enough. You fill in the blank. What is the Spirit of God saying to you about you? Listen to these words of truth. As a follower of Jesus Christ, this is your real identity. Let these words wash over you and sink deeply into you. You have infinite and eternal worth. You are highly valued. You are made in the image of God. You are a new creation. You are deeply loved, cherished, and adored. You have the fingerprint of God upon you. You are not alone, for he will never leave you. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. You are the pinnacle of his creation. You are accepted. You are forgiven and made new. You are a temple of the Holy Spirit. You are a joint heir with Jesus. You are a son or daughter of the King. You are his treasured possession. You have been made on purpose for a divine purpose. You are unique and special. You are constantly in his thoughts. You are his. 2 Corinthians 5.17 Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old has gone, the new is here. God is making all things new. He's redeeming your hurts. He's healing your scars. He's lifting your burdens and your broken labels. Rest in these good words. Bind them to your heart. Let them take root in your mind and flow into your being. And let Jesus meet you in them. Peace be still. You are
for your extraordinary love for us, God, that you have gone to such great lengths to redeem us and make us your own, God. Thank you that you are breathing new life into each one of us. And we pray that we would all have the courage, God, to release those things that do us harm and to receive from you all that you have for us and all that you say we are. Help us to love one another well in your name. Help us to cherish each other and who we're each becoming, God. Help us to speak life-giving words to one another that we might make you known in our midst, in our workplace, and through the ends of the earth. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for your work in us. Thank you that your desire is that we would flourish and we entrust ourselves anew to you this good day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.